Open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 17. I'll be reading verses 19 through 27. Jeremiah 17, 19 through 27. Thus said Yahweh to me, Go and stand in the people's gate, by which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say, Hear the word of Yahweh, you kings of Judah, and all Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says Yahweh, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your fathers. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. But if you listen to me, declares Yahweh, And bring no burden, bring in no burden by the gates of this city on the Sabbath day, but keep the Sabbath day holy, do not work on it. Then there shall enter by the gates of this city kings and princes who sit on the throne of David, riding in on chariots and on horses, they and their officials, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And this city shall be inhabited forever. And people shall come from the cities of Judea, the places around Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the Shephelah, from the hill country, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and frankincense, and bringing thank offerings to the house of Yahweh. But if you do not listen to me, to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when rather us coming as servants with empty hands, receiving your command to rest, we would rather work, rebel, and eat something that we've plucked in rebellion. So, Father, send your Spirit to convict, to illuminate, to teach. Give us open ears to hear your word, your commands. Because as they're given to us in Christ, they're life, they're peace their rest, their grace. So may we, Father, as your children, hear your every word with humble hearts. 
Christ's name, amen. Hearing God, even when His words are commands, hearing ultimately means rest. Our God speaks words of judgment. He speaks words of salvation. And hearing, responding appropriately to those words, ultimately means rest. If it's a word of judgment, hearing means repentance. So hearing means rest. And if it's a word of grace and salvation, hearing means believing. So hearing means rest. But such is the folly of human sin that rather than obey God's command to rest, we would rather rebel and work, as we see in our text. Our text this morning has three parts. First, Jeremiah receives a word of command concerning the Sabbath, concerning rest, verses 19 through 23. And second, blessing is promised should they obey this command, verses 24 through 26. And then cursing should they disobey, verse 27. And so the command, verses 19 through 23. Once again, Yahweh speaks to Jeremiah, telling him to speak. Thus said Yahweh to me, go, stand, and say. So the word comes to Jeremiah as uh, he receives a word of command. To speak, and what he's to speak is a word of command. He receives a, a, a word of command to speak, and what he is to speak is a word of command. And this way of setting up Jeremiah's prophecies, I hope you've noticed the pattern. This happens again and again and again in Jeremiah. The word of Yahweh. It's prominent in Jeremiah that everything's framed in that way. What's less prominent, what's less common is that he's to speak here in a certain place. That sticks out. That's a bit different. And that the location given is not incidental to the prophecy, but intrinsic to the message is clear by the repeated emphasis it receives. The gates, the gates, the gates. He, he identifies his audience as those who enter by the gates, verse 20. Burdens being brought in the gates are mentioned in verse 21, 24, 27. The promise held out for keeping the Sabbath is that kings, princes, will enter by the gates of the city, verse 25. And then verse 26 speaks of all the people surrounding Jerusalem, the area of Judea. That's what, what you have, the description of Benjamin, Shephelah, the hill country, Negeb. That's all the, the area of Judea. All these people who come to Jerusalem, they're coming to offer up sacrifices and offerings, and assumed in this is that they enter by the gates. So it's assumed there, it's implicit. And then finally, should Judah break the Sabbath, a fire will be kindled, verse 27, in her gates. So what's the significance of the gates? What, what is... What's this getting at? 
I think there are three aspects here. First is we have one gate that's singled out. It's the people's gate. We don't have a clue what, which gate that is. Some surmise that it's the Benjamin gate because that's the only other one named in Jeremiah. But that's not a whole lot to go on. We don't know what the people's gate was except what we're told here. It's the gate by which the kings and princes enter. And we'll see, this is the first of other items in this passage that links the Sabbath gates with the Davidic covenant with David. So just keep that in your head. Second, the gates were the place of business and commerce. And so if you wanted to see whether or not the command to keep Sabbath was being obeyed, the most prominent place you could look would be the gates. Is there business being done? Are there transactions being made? Is there judgment being declared? You could tell whether or not it's being violated or kept by looking at the gates. And then third, we have that, past, that piece of our text that talks about the people coming and offering, they're entering, coming into the city, offering up sacrifices, offerings. If they wanted to do that, they would come in by the gates. So I think those three aspects are tied into why the gates are so prominent here. Now, as for Jeremiah's message itself that he's declaring in the gates, it was a command to keep, before it was a command to keep the Sabbath, it was a command to hear Yahweh. His message, before it's a command, keep Sabbath, it's a command to hear Yahweh. Verse 20, hear the word of Yahweh. What's paramount here? is not their observance of a right. What's paramount, what's chief in this passage, is not that they keep Sabbath. That's secondary. What's of most critical importance is that they hear Yahweh. Very often, what needs to be changed isn't in our actions. It's in our ear. We need to repent of our actions quite frequently. But as Christians, we probably just as frequently need to repent, not because our actions in and of themselves were good, but because of something underlying all those actions. So the question is not, in this instance, do you keep Sabbath? The the more important question is, do you hear Yahweh? Why are you keeping Sabbath? And so for you... The question is, do you keep the law? And we could list any law. Do you, do you tell the truth? Do you lie? And more important than the question of, do you tell the truth, is, do you hear Yahweh? Which gets at, why are you telling the truth? Is it because the Lord your God has commanded? And out of reverence and love and gratitude and independence upon Him, you're obeying? Or is it tied up in some other kind of idol of self? They are to hear the word of Yahweh, and hearing means more than the ability to make sense by means of the ear of what the person is communicating. To hear means to listen, and to listen means to obey. What Judah is called upon to do here is contrasted with what, the, what their fathers failed to do in verse 23. They failed to listen. They didn't keep Sabbath, and their failing to keep Sabbath was a failure to Listen, it was a failure to hear. 
And hearing also, verse 21, means taking care for the sake of their lives. Hearing and obeying is a matter of life and death. So you remember in Numbers chapter 15, there was that man who was caught gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And they didn't know what to do with him. They take him into custody until it would be made plain to them what they were to do with him. And Yahweh speaks to Moses, giving the answer, saying, The man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Numbers 15.35 So the command, again, is to hear. And to hear means to listen. And to listen means to obey. And you're to listen, taking care for the sake of your lives. Then who's to listen? Everyone. The kings, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all Judah, everyone. Everyone's to hear it, though the kings are singled out, and though the people of Jerusalem in particular are named, everyone, all Judah, is to hear this command. She's commanded to hear, and what she's commanded to hear, then, is uh, five commands. She's commanded to hear five commands, but these, all, these five commands really all relate to one command, one commandment, the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verses 21 through 22, first they're commanded to bear no burden on the Sabbath day. Second, bring no burden in by the gates of the city. Third, verse 22, they're not to carry a burden out of their houses. Now let me pause You have these commands back to back. You're not to bring a burden in by the gate and you're not to carry a burden out of your houses. And I think perhaps these have respect to those who are of Judea and those who dwell in Jerusalem. Those outside of Jerusalem, the command not to bring a burden in would be especially pertinent. They're not to bring a command, uh, uh, not to bring a burden in to the gates. They're not to approach the city to do commerce and business. They're not to bring a burden into the gates. And then the people inside the city who dwell in houses, they're not to bring a burden out of their houses for the purpose of taking it to the gates. Though it has broader application, I think that's the primary intention. Fourth, they're not to do any work at all. And then fifth and finally, they're to keep the Sabbath day holy as God commanded their fathers. So you got four negatives and one positive. Statement. The Sabbath command, as it was given in the Ten Commandments, the ten words from the fire, is is peculiar in that it's one of only two commands that are stated positively. The other one being, honor your father and mother. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And yet, though it's stated positively, it's also stated negatively. Exodus 20 verse 10, On it you shall not do any work. So it's peculiar in this way. Obedience to the positive means a negative. Obedience to the positive means a negative. Keeping Sabbath means not doing something. There's a kind of doing God is commanding in the Sabbath, and the doing largely involves not doing. The doing God wants you to do On the Sabbath, he's telling his people, is a not doing. And their fathers didn't listen. In rebellion, they stiffened their neck that they might not receive this instruction, verse 23. And the question then is, especially in our leisurely, lazy age, 
we would look at this and ask, why would they not obey such a command? And you get one answer in Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over? So these would be uh, in regard to their festivals. Uh, That we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale. That we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. That we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. Now this is during Isaiah's reign. Things have have gotten even worse by the time of Jeremiah. But during Isaiah, the, the objection to the Sabbath is not just greed, but it's greed by means of injustice. They don't just want to do business They want to carry on their unjust business, their oppression, their extortion of their brothers. So that's one reason. Love of money, unjust greed. But I don't think that's the foundational reason why they're breaking the Sabbath. And to get at that, let's... First, answer another question that might be itching in your brain. Isn't all of this really making a big deal out of the Sabbath, you might wonder? And in one way, I think you can see that these commands concerning the Sabbath do function in a way of putting forward the part representing the whole. You had something similar in chapter 7. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. And so there you see the central emphasis on if you do justice, you'll abide in the land. Idolatry was mentioned there, but the real emphasis is on justice, loving your neighbor. But the Sabbath command doesn't arbitrarily stand forward on part of the whole, as a part representing the whole, in a way that any commandment could do. Something more is involved here. It wasn't just chosen in the way that any command could be chosen to put forward as part representing the whole. Something more is happening. And this is because the Sabbath is not just a covenant command. It was a covenant sign. It was a sign of the covenant. Exodus 31, 12 through 17. Yahweh said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Isn't that peculiar? Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, Yahweh, sanctify you. So the command is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, sanctified, set apart. And you're to keep it that you may, may remember that I sanctify you. You're setting this day apart as holy, remembering that I've made you holy. He goes on. 
You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. So as a sign of the covenant, it stands for the covenant itself. So this isn't the part being put forward to represent the whole. This is the whole put forward in part. This is all the covenant put forward in a sign, a symbol. How did then this sign signify the covenant? And there are two answers in a way. I think they're one, but it begins as we examine them looking like two. And the first one you get in Exodus, the second one in Deuteronomy, you get them in the places where the Ten Commandments are unfolded. So Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. He's catching that. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So the grounds for Sabbath observance, as they're given in the commandments in Exodus, are rooted in creation. And so many have reasoned from this that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance that's incumbent on all men for all time. But did you not just hear that the same reasoning was given in Exodus, the the previous chapter we just had in in Exodus 31, that it ended as well saying, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And again and again in Exodus 31, it was emphasized, this is a sign of the covenant God made with his people. This is a sign of the covenant that he's made with with Israel, that he's made through Moses. And so again and again, this is a sign that's peculiar to the people that he's redeemed. And you have to remember in this that Genesis, though it was ancient history already, it was hot off the press. Genesis was ancient history hot off the press. Genesis wasn't ticking out of some printer as the events are unfolding, and the people of God are just getting a little bit more Bible as history's unfolding. It was hot off the press. Moses had given it to the people that are receiving the commandment concerning the Sabbath. And what I think is at play here is not that he's saying this has been a commandment that's been incumbent on all men for all time. He's giving this as a sign to his people, and he's saying this is who your God is. He is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who created in seven and six days and rested on the seventh day. Be holy as God is holy. 
And He's making you holy, so set aside this day as holy. It's a way of you showing who your Redeemer is who brought you out of Egypt. Now, I think that answer is correct largely because I think it best harmonizes with the second answer that's given as to why they're to keep Sabbath. Deuteronomy 5, 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as Yahweh your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and that your male servant and your female servant may have rest as well as you you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and Yahweh your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm therefore Yahweh your God commanded you to keep the sabbath day for this reason he commanded it so the second reason is to remember the exodus to remember that they were slaves and they've been delivered and now they have rest. And this is a way for their male servants and their female servants to enjoy rest as they remember that they were slaves redeemed out of Egypt. Add to this that they were, when they were redeemed out of the slavery in the land of Egypt, they were being redeemed to a land promised to them and it was promised to be a land of rest. It's striking the way this is spoken of in Deuteronomy 12.8. Yahweh says He will give them rest in that land when He chooses a place for His name to dwell, having given them rest from all their enemies. So He's bringing them into this land, and they're going to have rest, and that rest is going to correlate to the time whenever He's defeated their enemies and He's established a place for His name to dwell forever among them. Solomon rejoiced in the fulfillment of that promise during the peace that was, had come under his reign because of his father and his battles. And he, he, he expresses joy in that promise being fulfilled at the dedication of the temple. He says, 1 Kings 8.56, Blessed be Yahweh who has given rest to His people Israel according to all that He promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant. So now do you see in this way, the Sabbath doesn't simply, as it stands for the covenant, it doesn't simply speak of the past. It doesn't just look back at creation and redemption. It looks forward to the rest that was going to come and be enjoyed in any prolonged state as they kept covenant. It speaks to this rest that they were to have in the land whenever God defeated their enemies, they dwelt in the land promised to them, and He dwelt among them in that place. Now, in light of all that, can you see why breaking Sabbath was breaking covenant? It stood for the covenant itself. It'd be like the church today deciding we're not going to baptize anymore. We're not going to observe the supper anymore. To treat the covenant signs in that way would be a bold statement of rebellion. It would be breaking covenant. 
So back to the first question. Why would Judah break a command where the doing is a not doing? It's a command to rest. Why would they break such a command? Because the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant. Why don't they keep the Sabbath? Because it is a sign of the covenant. They don't destroy the covenant by breaking Sabbath. They're breaking Sabbath because they've already destroyed the covenant. Before the covenant sign of the Sabbath was ever violated in such a way, their hearts had already whored after other gods and followed them. Before the ring is flung off in violence, they had already loved another. The covenant sign is being desecrated because they've already broken covenant. Whenever a church starts playing loose with the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, or the preaching of the Word of God, she's already broken covenant. It happened before that, not by it. That the, the desecrating of those things makes visible not only well, it makes visible their infidelity. So the covenant signs not only are a way to portray faithfulness to the covenant, they're a way to portray unfaithfulness as far as they're absent or abused. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He lived to be the righteousness of those who trust in Him, that He died to bear away the wrath of God for sin, that He rose defeating death and Satan, and that He will return again to make all things new. And if you believe in that and trust in Him, but you've not been baptized and joined a local fellowship to partake of the supper, you are ignoring God's covenant signs given to His church. And so I would plead with you, hear the word of Yahweh. Take care for the sake of your lives. Listen and obey. Through Peter, well, Peter proclaimed on Pentecost, Acts 2.38, repent And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God commanded His church to make disciples. And to baptize those disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you refuse to be baptized. You may call yourself a disciple. But the the only kind of disciple I can see that you are is a stiff-necked and rebellious one. Take care for the sake of your lives. Because your view of the covenant signs is your view of the covenant itself. 
Hear the word of Yahweh. Listen, obey. And should this generation, contrary to their fathers, listen and obey, not bringing in a burden to the gates on the Sabbath day, keeping the Sabbath day holy, not doing any work on it, verse 24, if they should remember the Sabbath day, then three promises are held out. The first, verse 25, kings and princes shall enter by their gates. Perhaps this made you think of a promise that uses similar language in Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I think that that promise is related to this promise, but they're not identical. Because the kings and the princes spoken of here are those who sit on the throne of David. And they enter riding on chariots and horses. Why are they entering their own city with chariots and horses? This is a victory march. When were the people promised rest? When God dealt with their enemies. And who was to be the first one out dealing with the enemies? Their king. This is a victory march. And so they're coming in with chariots and horses, having returned from conquest. They're returning in victory. The officials and the men who are coming with them, this is a military procession. Psalm 74, 7 through 10 anticipates the king of kings entering the gates in such a way. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh of angel armies. He is the King of glory. Strong and mighty in battle. In glory, the glory of victory. The Lord of angel armies entering the city. Gates, fling them open. Open them wide. That's what's being anticipated here. You see how it relates to the Sabbath now. Suddenly, I think Yahweh is telling His people, if you will keep Sabbath, you will enjoy Sabbath. If you will keep Sabbath, you will enjoy Sabbath as He gives His king victory over their enemies. Second, the city will be inhabited forever, verse 25. This is the kind of rest that flows from the previous promise. The reason the city is inhabited forever is because it's ruled forever. The reason it's inhabited forever is because it's ruled forever. In the Davidic covenant, God spoke to David saying, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. 
and violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house, speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Did you see it? Three times. Forever. And the reason then it's promised that they will dwell forever in the city is because it will be ruled forever by one who sits on the throne of David. Third, finally, they're promised that people will come from all over the land of Judea to offer sacrifices in worship of Yahweh, verse 26. And did you catch how that was elaborated on in the Davidic covenant? There's a place appointed for Israel where God makes His name to dwell among them, that a son of David, that God would raise up, would build that house. Now, Again, I believe what you see in all this, this is the thrust of the promise. If they will keep Sabbath, they will enjoy Sabbath. And integral to this is the Davidic covenant. As you look at this promise for keeping the Sabbath, that they'll be blessed if they do so, you despair. Because you see it's contingent on man. But then, you begin to notice how interweaved with this promise is the Davidic covenant. And hope is kindled. Because you saw it was contingent on God's grace and faithfulness. Before I expound on that any further, let's look at the curse. Should they not listen, fail to keep the Sabbath holy, bear burdens on the Sabbath day, entering by the gates with them. If they do so, verse 27, there will be fire. It will be a fire kindled in their gates, the place where they made manifest their infidelity. And the fire that's kindled in the gates will devour their palaces, the places where the kings and princes dwelled. And this fire will not be quenched. Second Chronicles 36 speaks of the fulfillment of this curse. Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words. Do you hear again? Take care for the sake of your lives. Scoffing at His prophets. 
until the wrath of God rose against the people, until there was no remedy. Does this remind you of the previous section where the sin of Judah is written on their heart? Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of Yahweh and the treasures of the king and of his princes. All these he brought to Babylon and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. This wasn't a command that God, a curse that God sprung upon them all of a sudden here with Jeremiah. In Leviticus 26, he says, if you break covenant, I will scatter you. And then he says, because when, once they're scattered, Leviticus 26, 34 through 35, the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while, you're in, while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. The land will enjoy rest. They will not. One day, our Lord will return anew in glory. And He will speak. And creation will be made new. No longer groaning. It will finally have rest. And I plead with you. Hear. Listen. Take care for the sake of your lives. Because if you do not. You will have no part in that rest. The land will have rest, and you will have none. But the question that I know is likely nagging many of you is, okay, what does this have to do with us, though, in connection to the Sabbath? Towards an answer, there are three ways of reading the Scriptures that will lead you to three different answers. First, there's the dispensationalist view, which, to put it in its most crude and simple fashion, classical dispensationalism says there's Israel and there's the church. And this is all Old Covenant. It doesn't pertain to the church. This relates to Israel and the covenant God made with her. So this way of reading the Scriptures leans very heavily to discontinuity. If there's a scale of discontinuity and continuity, dispensationalism is in the red on the discontinuity side. Second, there is the classical reformed or covenantal view. Historically, 
Reformed covenant theologians have stressed the continuity of the Sabbath. The continuity of the Old and New Covenants, for that matter. And this is true also of our Baptist forefathers. So while our Baptist fathers would stress more, more, not altogether discontinuity, but they would stress a bit more discontinuity than, say, our Presbyterian brothers would in relation to circumcision corresponding to baptism. When it came to the Sabbath, they alike both affirmed continuity. There's very little difference in the 1689 Baptist uh, Confession and the Westminster Confession on this matter. So, chapter 22, section 7. Second London Confession, 1689 Confession reads, As it is the law of nature that in general a, por- a proportion of time by God's appointment be set, up, set apart for the worship of God, so, by, so you see that they're rooting it as a creation ordinance, so by His word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day and seven, seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as, a Christ, as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. This is also what's regarded as the Sabbatarian position. Also, you will know that there are Seventh-day Sabbatarians who advocate for the seventh day, uh, for the Sabbath to be observed on a Saturday. These positions tip towards continuity, and there are more and more persons who want to floor the continuity even further than what uh, the Westminster Confession or the 1689 Confession puts forward. More on that in a bit. First, though, the third position. There's what we might call the fulfillment position. Remember Jesus said, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, not until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is Accomplished, Matthew chapter 5. So contrary to the dispensationalist, Jesus did not say that the law is irrelevant for his disciples, although classical dispensationalism gets out of this by saying that the Sermon on the Mount was addressed to national Israel and doesn't have any part with the church at all, which is kind of a bummer that then you read your gospel and you find out it's no gospel. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Leave that aside. Contrary to the... dispensationalist, it's not irrelevant. Contrary to the classic covenant view, Jesus didn't say he simply came to ensure the law's unaltered perpetuity. He came to fulfill it. And so in recent years, I've encountered more persons who I believe are reacting against the dispensationalist view, who 
think that evangelical Christians as a lot, all together, are antinomians. Part of this is because we eat bacon, and the other part is because we uh, go out and eat that bacon on a Saturday. They don't think we keep, they think we just show an utter disregard for God's law. They'll even say this of covenant theologians, although I think they don't know covenant theology most of the time. I think it's largely a reaction against dispensationalism. And while I share their distaste for dispensational theology's shoddy dismissal of the law, I think that they also disregard God's law. Fulfillment is not about less. Fulfillment is about more. Whenever I turn from the shadow of my spouse to embrace my spouse herself, I don't have less, I have more. I haven't lost anything. If I kept looking at the shadow, that's whenever I would have lost. True, the law of God is written on the heart. But also, shadows are replaced by substance. Whenever a bud blooms and I eat the fruit, I eat everything that the bud was and more. And so I think I'm zealous to keep the Sabbath. Whenever I speak of the Sabbath being fulfilled, there's a way that I think I keep it better. There's a way that I think I have more than you do when you're all about a seventh-day observation. I believe it's a critical matter of life and death to keep Sabbath. One must take care or they will die. What does this mean? Fulfillment means there's both discontinuity and continuity. Jesus Christ and His accomplished work are the lens at which we must look at all of the Scripture now. We don't disregard any part of it. We read it through the light of Jesus and His accomplished work. The approach that I'm advocating for here is akin to what our Baptist forefathers did whenever they evaluated baptism and in relation to circumcision. I only wish that they would have paid the same attention to the covenant sign of the Mosaic Covenant as they did to the covenant sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. And I think they would have come to some similar conclusions. The Sabbath is a sign. We've discussed that. But as a sign, it not only looks back, it looks forward. It's a shadow. And so Paul warns the Colossians, who are in danger of being influenced by a kind of Hebrew mysticism, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath anticipates. It's the bud. Where's the fruit? The fruit is Christ. The shadow is the Sabbath. The substance is Christ. If you want to learn how to read your Old Testament, read Hebrews. Read Hebrews again and again. I'm convinced that a major reason why the book of Hebrews is in our New Testament is to teach us how to read our Old Testament. For instance, why don't we have priests? Hebrews will tell you. Because their work was never complete. But now we have a high priest 
who has sat down. Why don't we have sacrifices? Because all of the do-nothing sacrifices of the Old Covenant were to point forward to the do-everything sacrifice of the New Covenant. Concerning the rest which Israel was to enjoy in the land and the warning to listen, to not harden their hearts. Concerning the rest that they were to enjoy in the land and to listen lest they fail to take part in it. Hebrews says, Hebrews 4, 8 through 11, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And what was that disobedience? A failure to hear because they hardened their hearts. Where's this rest found? Where does Hebrews tell us that this rest is found? It's found not in the shadow, but in the substance. It's found in Christ, who worked so that we might rest. In the New Testament, every command taken from the dec- every command in the Decalogue is quoted in the New Testament. As you read those commands through the light of Christ, every one of them comes right over to us. There's only one of the ten, though, that's not quoted. The command concerning the Sabbath. And does this not make sense? Because it's the only command that's not simply a command. It's a sign of the covenant. In the new covenant, two signs are expressly given to the church. The sign of baptism, the sign of the Lord's Supper. So then, what does it mean for us to hear, to listen, to take care for the sake of our lives in light of Christ and His accomplished work? I'll say this, I think the principle of working six days and resting one is a principle that is ingrained into creation And it's the rhythm of life that's best. But as far as the command as given to His people concerning the Sabbath, what does this mean for us? So we read it through the lens of Christ. Our rest is found as the people of God when we gather to celebrate and worship our Lord. And to hear His Word. And to see that word visibly portrayed in the sacraments of the new covenant. The author of Hebrews, having unpacked the priesthood and work of Christ, admonishes us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Saints and sinners, hear this word. Take care for the sake of your lives. Listen. These are the words of our Lord. Matthew 11. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Truly, Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. Rest is found in Him and Him alone. Let's pray. Father, because of Your redemption, laws written on our, on our hearts, and we do, and yet, we also acknowledge that the reason we have rest is not because of anything we've done, but because of the accomplished work of your Son. There's a, there's a kind of way you speak to us every time we gather, reminding us that there's a doing we should be doing that is a not doing. And that not doing is leaning into Christ and the rest that we have in Him. And having rested in Christ, knowing that we have failed to keep the law, we were in bondage to sin, but by Him we've been delivered and the law has been written on our hearts, having rested in Christ, then with joy and gratitude, we work heartily as unto you and not unto ourselves. So be glorified, Father, as we rest in Christ and then striving with all His strength that He's worked in, that you're working into us by your Spirit. May we take up the task you've laid before us with gratitude and joy for the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen.